Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. Back in 2012, one of the biggest hurricanes to ever strike the American shoreline at the time, Hurricane Sandy, wreaked havoc on the northeast part of the United States in New York and New Jersey. And since that time, Hurricane Harvey in 2017 on the Gulf Coast. We had a great show today to talk about those storms, but also talk about the response to those storms. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. Kimberly Miller, who is the Harvey Recovery Task Force Chairman for the American Planning Association's Texas Chapter. She is also the Principal Planner for Resiliency at Haffin Associates, a consulting firm here in Texas. Kimberly, welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. Thank you, Peter and Tyler. Very happy to join you guys today. Well, we're very happy to have you on, uh, Kimberly, because you are putting together a wonderful symposium, I think we can call it, Navigating a Wetter World, a Resilient Rebirth for the Texas Coast. And we're excited to get into it, learn all about the schedule, and uh, learn a little bit about your motivations for putting this gathering together. But before we do, let's have a quick word from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering with 28 offices along the Gulf Coast. The folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numeric modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. And now they have a brand new coastal resiliency department headed up by our very own Peter Ravella. Check them out at lja.com. We are also brought to you by Coastal Transplants. Coastal Transplants prides itself on offering specific environmental and horticultural expertise with practical firsthand knowledge of all aspects of coastal revegetation projects. Their high quality native and wetland plants, extensive agricultural and horticultural experience, along with their skilled and respectful crews, make coastal transplants your one-stop solution for restoring coastal ecology of your barrier island community. Learn more at CoastalTransplants.com. And we are brought to you by our good friends at the Dune Science Group, specializing in dune restoration, protection, and builders of the toughest, most long-lasting dune walkovers on the market. And if you're in the southeast region of the American shoreline, come on out to the Fernandina Beach City Golf Course on Tuesday, February 18th for a special informational happy hour featuring a 20-foot fiberglass dune walkover section. I have on the phone with me right now Frank Hopf, Director of Science at the Dune Science Group, to tell us more about the company and the event. Thanks, Tyler. Um, yes, I moved here to Fernandina Beach about four years ago uh, after uh, teaching at Texas A&M for a couple of years and teaching coastal geomorphology and getting my PhD there. And I, I realized that I was, after a few months of lying on the beach and the golf courses, that I was sort of wasting my years of study and research on aeolian geomorphology. And I had dunes out there that were, were uh, needing some uh, love and attention. So I started doing some educational programs for, for my neighbors and friends in the community. And out of that, once people realized how important the dunes are and how easy they are to, uh, to love and maintain and what, what all they provide, they were quite anxious to figure out how they could, could uh, help grow their dunes, help protect their dunes, and, and take care of things. And I realized they really, you know, it's a little more complex than, than uh, someone wants to take on. Like It's not quite like planting a lawn. So I thought I'd form a little company to, uh, to uh, help some of my neighbors and friends do just that. 
but um, along the way, I was doing some work uh, free for the city, and uh, the city had to shut down a couple of dune walkovers, about 12 of them in the height of the, the tur- spring tourist season last year. And so one of the uh, folks came to me and said, Frank, can you find us a better way to to build these walkovers? These wooden ones just deteriorate too quickly, require too much maintenance, and uh, they're just not working for us. So I developed a little research project comparing all the other alternatives to wood that were available. And quite frankly, from that, uh, we found that the molded fiberglass uh, open molded fiberglass walkover was the uh, was the best opportunity from cost standpoint, and particularly from from its uh, ability to uh, to look like real wood and imitate real wood in many ways, um, but last that way for a long time. So uh, from that we ended up uh, I ended up in a joint venture with the uh, manufacturers of of the fiberglass walkover. And we formed just last month the Dune Science Group to uh, provide the beach restoration work, beach protection work, and to help uh, spread the use of these superior walkovers. Um, So to introduce our company and uh, our services, we decided to have a little kickoff gathering, a little party, happy hour, and invited some of the beachfront property owners, uh, beachfront property managers, some of the builders and architects who work on the beachfront here in, in Fernandina. But we'd love to expand it and some of the community um, access managers, beach access managers from the city and the county. But we'd also like to expand it to other coastal engineering and science-based firms that do similar work up and down the coast and have them, them join us and, and see this product. Um, of course, the advantages of it, we can, we can go much longer stands because the weight ratio of fiberglass compared to, uh, to strength, weight, strength ratio to weight of fiberglass is superior to not only wood, but even steel. And so we have much longer spans. We go 30 feet as a typical span, so less interference in the dune itself. Uh, the long life of the fiberglass is, is, uh, Totally untested because the fiberglass has been around for about 50 years, but not much of it has deteriorated yet that we can tell, know of. And it, it is also so very realistic. Uh, the We can form almost any texture of wood, make it in any color, and the good news is that it will look like that 20 years down the road with, with minimal amount of maintenance. And that's one of the real highlights of us having the uh, 20-foot by foot five foot wide walkover section that uh, people can look at uh, if they come come to our little little party so i'd love to have everyone come and uh, learn a little bit i hope and uh, have a good time thanks for that introduction to the dune science group frank and again for our listeners the informational happy hour with the dune science group will be on tuesday february 18th at the fernandina beach city golf course at 2800 bill melton road in Fernandina Beach, Florida, just off the A1A. Hope to see you all there. Well, Kimberly, thank you for taking time out of your day. This event that Tyler referenced, uh, Navigating a Wetter World, coming up February 21st, an all-day effort at the Saltwater Pavilion, a great location in Rockport, Texas. 
Uh, Kimberly, this is an American Planning Association event, I believe. Would you give our audience an overview of your what your role is with uh, APA? And then we'll dive into this event and learn more. Absolutely. Well, one of the things that um, planners all over the United States do after a major hurricane is they work through their professional associations to provide aid, assistance, and information to folks that are on the ground um, in the aftermath of a hurricane. Since uh, really since September 11th and even a little bit before, uh, planners have been working on best practices that help communities recover and mitigate uh, the effects of future disasters. And right after Hurricane uh, Harvey, our chapter president at the time, Kim Mickelson, who is a lawyer for the city of Houston, started mobilizing people from all over the country. And um, we drew on experience in Louisiana and uh, also our folks in New York that had familiar with Hurricane Sandy. And my, um, my role in this was... Um, one of those voluntold sort of things where you uh, you volunteer to help out a little bit and uh, the more you volunteer, the more you find that you are right in the middle of it. So we've been working to connect urban planners across Texas with expertise from New York and New Jersey on how we proceed with Harvey recovery ever since Hurricane Harvey hit. Well, Kimberly, this is a right down the strike zone for the American Shoreline podcast. And Coastal News today, because we do believe in sharing information and insights for thriving shorelines around the American shoreline. So uh, we applaud that effort. And I think, you know, we, we, we obviously need to get into the event, but introduce yourself a little bit more for our audience. How did you come into being voluntold, as you said? Are you, <laughs> what, what were your uh, core interests here? In the... Uh Actually, in 2001, um, after after September 11th happened, I was living and working in New York City. And one of the things that was such an amazing part of that event is, is the recovery process. People from all the professions, planners, architects, and, uh, and American civil engineers, all got together and helped work towards solutions for the recovery process after a, a major disaster, a terrorist event in that in that case. Um, I was so inspired by that effort. I've continued my career along that that route um, and uh, spent time in Mississippi, coastal Mississippi after Hurricane Katrina as well, working for Oxfam America doing community development post-storm. When Hurricane Harvey hit, uh, that was definitely not the direction that I was headed in, um, but I started drawing on the experiences that I'd had in, in New York and other places on the Gulf Coast with what a professional organization can do to support recovery and started activating the networks that I had as well in the New York area and the New Jersey area and, and started trying to bring those to bear um, for or on behalf, really, of Texas planners who were seeking solutions for recovery. Hmm. You know, you mentioned a couple of things, and I'm, I wonder if we could do a little compare and contrast. You know, when we were in high school and you had to write, a, had to write a compare and contrast essay, you talked about the 9-11 recovery process and how inspired you were by the, uh, the effectiveness, I think, of that effort. And then in your time at Oxfam, 
which is a nonprofit organization, works with communities, uh, your efforts on the Gulf Coast after Katrina. And at least from the popular press, the depiction of the effort in, after Katrina was not particularly good. So on the one hand, we've got this 9-11 response. On the other one, we've got Katrina. How about a compare and contrast? What do you think made, what made 9-11's response inspiring and what is your take on the Katrina response? Well, they're extremely difficult or different events um, based on the scale and the type of disasters that occurred. Um, I think one of the things that actually jumping forward from Katrina a little bit that's really been interesting to watch in the recovery process for all three of these events is how people have learned at each step of the way. Um, there were a number of lessons that I think people learned in Hurricane Katrina, and that's part of what we'll talk about in the event on Friday is what the difference was in the response, the federal dollars, the federal programs, and the response to Hurricane Katrina in terms of how rebuilding went about, how funds were distributed, and uh, how that really um, is leading to, I think, a more proactive approach now um, in CDBG program distribution in particular. Um, I think a lot of what happened in New York and New Jersey was very, um, it, it was very public spirit driven. Um, you have an overabundance of people who have the education to, to do this kind of rebuilding work, recovery work. And, um, and people, I think, have a, a public spirit in New York and, and wanted to get on the ground. I don't think that you had that same um, just density of those professionals in, in the Katrina-affected areas. And so there was a gap, I think, professionally to be able to do that kind of direct outreach and, and volunteering um, from a professional level. So... Um, there, there are quite a few differences, but I think that the, the things that we really learned um, from the New York response was how to be very proactive, how to be very quick, and how to be very organized, and how to have your pre-staging for how you will respond to disasters in place before a disaster ever hits. Very interesting. And, and we're getting kind of into these specific uh, cataclysmic events, which are obviously hugely impactful and important for coastal communities that are trying to recover. Uh, and so it, it, it definitely is a good place to start. But I'd like to move now to this concept of a resilient rebirth for the Texas coast, the title of your gathering coming up here on Friday, February 21st, ladies and gentlemen, in Rockport, Texas. And uh, a resilient rebirth for the Texas coast. What do you mean by that? Is this a, is this event specific, or is this? Talk to me. You know, these are these are buzzwords that that we encounter all the time here uh, in coastal management. Uh, re, the, the 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 word resilience just really stra stands out. But what is what is this resilient rebirth? One of the things I just referenced is that in past disasters, we've had a very reactive approach to how you recover. And I think that the nation as a whole, but I think Texas is really doing a good job in particular, and, and New York also had some examples that they started working with uh, five years ahead of us in how you can really be planning and staging things in advance for how your recovery happens. So for example, one of the things that we'll talk about from New York's perspective 
is a, uh, a land use program, uh, New York's Resilient Neighborhoods program, that, will, um, that was almost a pilot. Uh, they realized what some of their biggest issues were in terms of preparing for you know, the next sort of event, um, the type of rebuilding they did, the, uh, the way that they located new construction in the area, those were all parts of you know, what they addressed. So the Resilient Neighborhoods Program was a pilot program in New York City after Hurricane Sandy. It identified neighborhoods that were the most at risk and developed a pilot program of land use controls and public outreach that helped prepare people for the amount of risk that would be happening, you know, there potentially in the future, so that the level of damage that happened in Sandy would not repeat if they had a similar hurricane in the future. And so it's those kinds of lessons, um, those kinds of, you know, testing things out, finding out what's worked that we really want to get into and talk about on Friday. It sounds very interesting, and the the uh, for the folks around the country who are not from Texas uh, and don't know what uh, Rockport, Texas, a small town, Rockport, Texas, just a little up the coast from, I think the city of Corpus Christi. It's on the bay. Uh, the city of Rockport was, I would say, devastated is a fair word. Uh, Absolutely by Hurricane Harvey. Absolutely lost. Uh, significant infrastructure, homes, and property. Uh, introduce our audience, if you would, to Rockport, Texas. Sure, and, Rockport was, go ahead. Well, and, and also why this is the site of your work. Rockport was the eye of the storm. As you mentioned, it was a very small, um, it's a very small community. It's an, in a lot of ways a resort, um, but there are people who live there year round who have lived there for generations. So when the um, when the hurricane made landfall, <clears throat> the part that most people saw on television was the extended period of rain that happened in Houston and up the coast um, towards Orange and Beaumont, um, towards the Louisiana border. But it was an immediate impact in Rockport, and it was so quick and devastating in, in the small community of Rockport that Corpus Christi, which is 15 to 20 minutes away, experienced very minor damage while Rockport had damage to the majority of its buildings in some form or fashion. And one thing that's very interesting um, from my professional perspective of working with these issues for, uh, I, I hate to say how many years. <laughs> of we'll say more than 10. More than 10. There you go. <laughs> People can count back. But the, uh, <clears throat> the majority of the damage um, happens to the areas that are least protected in terms of the, the age of their structures, the location of their structures, and the ability of their citizens to actually evacuate and, uh, and you know, protect their homes um, when a big storm happens. And so part of the reason that the APA has been working on this series of programs. This is the third of the programs. It's the first one that's actually in sight, but the other two have been um, um, webinars that we've hosted. Um, we've been really focusing on this area of Texas that we call the Coastal Bend because there are a number of small communities that have limited planning capacity available to them on a day-to-day -day basis. And we're hoping to bring some new thoughts and some new ideas to complement their effort to recover. Hmm. It's a bold idea. When I look at the agenda for the event, 
that participation uh, is a wide variety of experts here from the state agencies, from the consulting community, city government, uh, planners from around the country. It's got to be, this is such an interesting thing to me because here you have two people on the agenda uh, coming from New York City, Mary Kimball, formerly the New York City planning uh, director, I guess, with Arcadis, and then also Sarah Nielsen from the New York City Parks Department. You couldn't find a more urban couple of professionals than that, and they're coming down here to Rockport, Texas. I can't tell. I don't remember the population, but I'm going to guess 3,000. So here are the New Yorkers going to walk into this Texas town, two places that have suffered substantial impact from hurricanes, Hurricane Sandy, in addition to 9-11 up in New York City, and uh, Harvey, as you mentioned, on the Gulf Coast. Um, what do you expect can, can be shared and transferred uh, from, from the New Yorkers and the other participants uh, to the mayor of Rockport and the other local professionals and, and, and leaders down here on the Texas coast? Absolutely. Well, the way we've build that, been building up to this event is through a series of conversations. And like I said, the webinars we've been hosting over the course of the last year. So the conversations have been, you know, folks from New York City um, paired up with planners from Texas in similar roles leading up to actually having webinar conversations. Um, but they've been kind of like back and forth consulting conversations. What have you done? What were the problems you had? What are the lessons you learned? And there's a great deal of empathy that happens between any two people who've been through a hurricane recovery situation, regardless of the size of the community. Some of the obstacles that they face are very similar. Uh, one of the things I think that's interesting about the two participants we have from New York, and Mary actually is going to speak about her perspective and experience from working for New York City as well on the uh, New York City Resilient Neighborhoods Program, um, is that they both worked with smaller communities. So we don't really think of New York as being um, anything other than the giant monolith, right? But um, it's very much a city of neighborhoods and people's relationships and their investment and even their, you know, their jobs and their housing are in neighborhoods that if, if something happens in the far Rockaways in Queens, which is out towards Long Island, um, it affects the entire ecosystem, right? Not just the, the economic, just the um, natural ecosystem, but it affects the social ecosystem of that whole area as well. So I think one of the things that's interesting about the Resilient Neighborhoods Program for New York was how much they took a direct engagement with local communities, an assessment of what they needed and an assessment of what people thought they would work as a building point for how they built their long-term approach to zoning. And they did some really interesting stuff with building code as well that I think that is uh, really applicable for Rockport. Kimberly, uh, you will be moderating a uh, Q&A uh, with a keynote, Sean uh, Strange, uh, I believe from the General Land Office here of Texas, sure. and um, I'm, I'm the 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 title of the Q and A is uh, Planner's Role in Recovery and Mitigation. Help for our uh, help our audience understand where planners fit in here. I mean, for sure, you know. We, we, of course, follow along, uh, as the nation does, watching these storms come in. It's devastating. The helicopter's pulling people off roofs. Uh, I remember the footage of the dude 
on the ski do during Sandy going down avenues of Manhattan, you know, like on a ski do on a watercraft. Uh, so we watch, we watch all that, but, um, for planners, they, there, this is a different, this is a, this is something that needs to be planned for. And this is where resilience and mitigation begins. So t- tell me a little bit about the planner's role and what you hope to be talking to Sean about. Absolutely. Well, I think that the uh, state of Texas is really fortunate to have a very strong urban planning process as part of its um, its mitigation program that um, that's about to kick off in April. Um, so the approach, as I was talking about, that's changed from where we were with Hurricane Katrina to where we are now in Texas after Hurricane Harvey is there's been a gradual growth and learning process um that that's evolved from let's really just rebuild as quickly as we can and get people back in a home or get their businesses back running, get the communities functioning again to looking forward and building upon data and using that data to actually be the basis of where new building occurs, how the building process happens, where you encourage new investment. So those are all things that are part of how the long range planning process works. Hmm. So, Sean is actually trained as an urban planner. There are a number of different urban planners that are going to be part of the, um, uh, the mitigation efforts that are part of uh, the CDBG action plan. It's sort of the second round of CDBG dollars that's coming through the general land office. And Can we so quickly the, just explain that, that acronym yeah. there for those of us that are not acquainted? Absolutely. Yeah, it's, you got to stop planners from talking in acronyms. So CDBG stands for Community Development Block Grant. And so one of the ways that funds come down from the hurricane recovery process or from other major natural disasters is through an element of that program, which is administered by, um, uh, by Housing and Urban Development by HUD. Um, and that is the, that's the community development um, block grant program there's a special component of that program for disaster uh, disaster resilience and so or disaster recovery that is and so um the the funds that the state of texas is administering are part of the can i use the acronym now yes (laughs) okay so the funds the state of texas is administering are part of the cdbg dr program and disaster recovery the dr part Thank you very much. And we're going to be specifically talking with Sean about how urban planners can be part of the state's mitigation solutions that are funded by that federal funding source. And, you know, it it's, it, it seems to me a very good idea that uh, Sean is the first guest on the panel at the event coming up on the 21st in Rockport, Texas. Uh, because he's with the General Land Office, as you mentioned, uh, who administer the CDGB grant program, and it is a pile of money. About $4.2 billion has been made available uh, through this program. That is a lot of money. Um, it covers a lot of territory, say uh, the entire area affected by Harvey and other other events. Can you talk a little bit about the funds available and the opportunities that are created by this level of investment funding from the federal government operating through the general land office. So I think to get really deeply into it, um, I think 
I would like to invite anybody to come who can and share with us. Um, but the general land office is actually administering, I believe it is five programs. Um, there, there are a number of programs. Uh, right. And I'm actually looking for the list myself to be able to be an accurate number. Um, but there are, um, there are a couple things that are really directly related to, um, to community planning. So there's a regional and, and state planning component. There's a re resilient communities program, and there's also a hazard mitigation plans program. Right. Those are all places where urban planners play a role in the recovery process directly. And through doing things like reviewing building codes, understanding land use, and looking at long-term comprehensive development plans for cities. So in, you had mentioned that rather than rushing to get structures rebuilt, people back in their homes, we've evolved a little bit, and it sounds like in a very positive way in terms of disaster recovery planning and response in America, uh, to a point where we're starting to look at not just getting people into shelters, which obviously a significant number one priority, but Absolutely. to be smarter and to be better and maybe not make the same mistakes and maybe rebuild these communities in ways that are less less risky. Um, mm -hmm. You mentioned that there's a strong urban planning process that's going to kick off in April. Uh, so two things. Tell our audience about what's coming up in April in Texas on the Texas coast with respect to this issue. And I'd really like to get your thoughts and opinion on to what extent uh, are the folks out there listening to the guidance of the American Planning Association when it comes to things like zoning and building codes? How's the reception been? I, th I think it's positive. I think that there's a, it's always difficult to change people's um, perceptions and ways of doing things. Um, so there's, you know, whenever you change, for example, how you construct your building codes, and we are going to have someone talking specifically about uh, wind-resistant building codes um, at our at our event, but whenever you start making changes to how and where development occurs, I think it's it's a process um, reaching that point. There's been some terrific. Uh, speaking of civic engagement, there's been some terrific um, on the ground planning work that's going on. The American Planning Association Foundation has also um, funded a local economic development plan for downtown Rockport. And so that's something that the mayor of Rockport and the city planners and um, have all been very engaged in. Um, so that's, that's something that we see that one city that was the direct, that received the direct impact of Hurricane Harvey is already starting to change a lot of its processes based on some of this assistance and guidance. Um, Texas A&M, Texas Target Communities and, and Texas Sea Grant have been a real key part of the outreach and education process. They've hosted um, on the ground workshops to help people understand what their priorities, their needs and their tools are. Um, there are a number of different publications that are produced either here locally in Texas. Um, Texas Target Communities has done some great ones and the Hazard Mitigation Center from there. Um, and then the APA National has a lot of guidance that um, that's been produced that people are beginning to integrate into their codes, into their land use plans. So one of the other speakers that we'll have, uh, Jim Schwab, who's a moderator towards the end of the day, was one of the APA's primary um, writers of the new methods, the new policies that we're talking about today and, and really surveying what's worked all the way across the country. 
very much uh i want to get into that session there uh that's the two o'clock to three thirty session in the afternoon yes. uh the integrating scientific information into planning efforts and i i want to get into that uh, you did mention earlier uh on the show that gathering data uh, is an incredible is an incredibly important part of uh this evolution that peter mentioned to get better and becoming more resilient in the future um, but I, before that, there, there is a uh, session, Innovative Zoning and Land Use mm-hmm. Strategies. And <clears throat> we had the pleasure of having on uh, the dean of the UPenn, UPenn Dr. School Frederick, of Design. Dr. Frederick Steiner. Dr. Frederick. You might have known him. He was a UT guy. And I think you had grad, you got your, I think we were master's. I from think UT. we overlapped. Yeah. 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 Really uh, a, a great interview. I'd encourage our listeners, if you haven't yet uh, given that one a listen, uh, it's, a, it's, an, it's interesting. And he's talking about uh, the, the benefits of designing with nature. He's looking at this from a kind of an urban pl- design perspective, but planning and design are similar. And um, I, w- could you color in uh, what are some of the innovations here in zoning that, that you're learning about and that you think will be... Uh, talked about uh, at the event on the 22nd and and, the, and likewise with land use strategies. How, how is our thinking on these within these topics evolving? One of the things that the state's doing that I think is going to feed into how the planning practice works is they're starting to look at what the, um, what the future risks are to our coastal communities in terms of updating the FEMA floodplain information, um, understanding the, the, hydrology and the hydraulics of our coastal communities and our Texas rivers is a really important part of building that data. Uh, That happens differently, you know, state by state, um, but that's kind of an underpinning of how land use planning should should work going forward is is knowing that you are not planning for a 20-year comprehensive plan that puts, you know, a large portion of your people or your investment in harm's way. So updating that understanding of um, of, of what the future risks are likely to be. Um, that includes looking at um, tides, that includes looking at changing sea levels, and really developing a profile of the most suitable locations for new development. That's, that's part of what we need to look at. One of the interesting things that we're gonna be talking about um, with folks from New York is, um, is what they're proposing in terms of building codes. We'll also be talking with them um, with Julie of Smart Home America about some building code innovations, uh, looking at both, you know, what are the standards that people are building to? And then also, if we have a state that has such a large swath of, of land that has, you know, existing investment, existing people that are living on the waterfront, how do we look not only at just elevating all of our property, which to the extent that we can do that, that makes a lot of sense, but how do we also look at maybe floodproofing some property? So we're going to be looking at a range of solutions for how you um, increase the safety of your construction of your homes and your businesses along the coast. Um, Mr. Alechi, um, who was leading the the uh, Rockport uh, Regional Planning Assistance Team for APA, will talk about some of the experiences he's had across the country in, in ways that people have really looked at challenges that they might have and um, and 
custom tailored local solutions to what their conditions were. And that'll be part of the discussion about what the city of Rockport has done for its own downtown as well. Hmm. Uh, I'd like to, um, if we could, step back a little bit here and, and kind of ask a, and discuss maybe a broader philosophical question that Tyler and I have been exploring on, on the American Shoreline podcast. But when you're talking about uh, better zoning, better building codes, more adaptation, we can build communities and occupy these spaces in a safer way. There's no doubt that is um, a quite a provable proposition that we can be in these areas if we're smarter about it. Um, versus this other topic that Tyler and I have been exploring quite a bit on the podcast about the retreat idea and the contrast between these two approaches on risk management and mitigation. Um, so my question is this, how good can we be with zoning and codes? How much can we uh, flood proof, storm proof, risk proof our communities with better laws and regulations or should we just get the hell out of the way as our good friend <laughs> as our good friend rob young dr rob young from the center for developed shorelines oh, at western rob, carolina yeah. <laughs> talks about all the time can you can you can you jump into that broad debate and share your thoughts that varies so much depending on the community and there are several reasons that I say that. Um, one of them is that in some cases, it's the um, it's the history, it's the culture of the community. You have um, you have areas of the Gulf Coast where you've had continuous settlement for over three hundred years. Um, you have very distinct cultures, and really being aware of what that means for the people who live there, what kind of history, what kind of culture is there. Um, plays into a discipline about whether you're going to fully retreat from an area or not, even if it may be under extreme stress in terms of future weather patterns. Um, your geography plays a big part in it. Um, the willingness of your community to accept risk. I think one of the things that, that we talk about as planners, that I talk about professionally all the time, is communicating to people, here's your risk level. How do you make the most intelligent decision about how you want to plan for your future. Um, so I, I think that there there needs to be both a public awareness um, and a public engagement in making those kinds of decisions. I'm not sure that saying yes, retreat or or you know armor the heck out of the shoreline, either one is the right situation. I, I really do think it takes some local conversation about what the values of that community are and what the capacity is to recover if a if a disaster happens i will say one thing to kind of follow up on that the panel that we have scheduled from 2 to three thirty on scientific information and planning one of the things we're really going to talk about there from new york city parks um, from the university of texas marine science center and from coastal bend bays and estuaries is the importance of our uh, of our green space of our coastal marshes of our um of our parks in protecting our inland communities. And so that plays into the question that you're talking about in terms of retreating if necessary, if you have areas that are continually impacted by um, major disasters, what, what FEMA calls repetitive loss properties, then looking at adding those to your green space is one really potentially interesting solution. But we're gonna talk some about the natural dynamics of how shorelines behave and how coastal environments behave and how that blunts the force of um, major 
storm surge, major hurricane, and, and tropical storms for the communities that they protect. Very interesting. And um, that final uh, session that you just referenced, the which is which is again the integrating scientific information into planning efforts. Uh, and I noticed that you have uh, in that uh, session. Uh, Jace, friend of the pod, Jace Tunnel, uh, from the, he's, he's with, what's he, where the is he? Mission Aransas National Estuarine Research Reserve. That's Correct. right. Right. Yeah. That's right. And, and what's, what's interesting about the Nerdle guy, the, he's, he's our Nerdle <laughs> Patrol. He's so much more than Nerdle. He's, I, he's, I do, I know, but he's great on the Nerdle Patrol. He's like Dr. Nerdle, though. He, he I mean, globally <laughs> known as the Nerdle man, uh, which is great. He's got a brand, which is, you know, more than a lot of us can say. <laughs> um, and it's a great brand. And what actually I wanted to bring up the Nurdle Patrol because it's a um, citizen science, very much uh, getting the public engaged, uh, very active on social media. Ladies and gentlemen, if you have not followed the Nurdle Patrol or signed up for the newsletter, I highly recommend it. It's a really just interesting yep. it's, uh, network of citizen scientists who are going out to the beach collecting and doing Worldwide. these little 10 minute uh, surveys. But um, what what's interesting to me about this, Kimberly, is that he and his presence on this panel is that um, he and he's been on the pod and he explained this to us that it's it's essential to get uh, rate the citizenry, the the voters, the members of the community, the the rank and file folks who value the space, who live in the space, who spend time there to understand for themselves what the data is. Um, we live, we are very, as, as we've said before on this, we are data rich and it's hard to under comprehend billions of data points. Um, right. it's difficult to comp for an individual. Um, and yet, uh, w with computing power, with, uh, with our ability to, um, use technology we are able to kind of make sense of this stuff but it, if it doesn't resonate down to the actual folks if we're not able to have it make sense to the people who will ultimately be voting will ultimately be held accountable uh it 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 can't be that useful we we can't actually t bring it into use so i'm just curious to know as a, a, a professional planner someone who's thinking about the deep strategy the long-term strategy but also with the understanding that this whole house of cards can come collapsing down if we don't have like a rock solid foundation with the people are, tell me tell me how you're thinking what what are your thoughts are on that and uh how important is it to have grassroots you know kind of top to bottom uh understanding and agreement in the uh, planning strategy and profile that a given community is trying to do. Well, I'll tell you a personal anecdote about that. Yeah, let's make it personal. Yeah. Uh, so I, I graduated from planning school with what I feel like was a great planning education at the University of Texas. And I started my very first project with a very high profile project in Austin. Austin is... Um, a uh, high-impact engagement community, shall we say. Um, yes, there's a lot of busy people here. Absolutely. Um, but I, I don't think that your planning education necessarily prepares you for the difference between the foundation of knowledge and data that you have to have 
and the on the ground ability to read the situation, understand the politics that you're working in and um, and implement the solution that that you as a planner, you as a, an engineer, you as an architect or landscape architect are working toward. And so there's been a lot of experience from uh, from that first kickoff in Austin to my work in New York to my work in Coastal Mississippi that's taught me the importance of really understanding understanding the um, the folks who make decisions for the city or the county or the, or the state that you're operating in and understanding the motivations that will um, that will help them to get to a point where they're building safer communities. That's it's on us too to be able as planners, it's on us to be able to take things from the master's degree level that we all have and translate it into concepts that as exactly as you and Jay said are understandable at the ground level. You know, I do a lot of work with people who um, are trying to protect their waterways and talking to them about the impact of if you have dirt flowing into your bayous, then you're going to smother the fish that you're coming after, you know? Um, so it's going to impact your recreation. It's going to impact your daily life. Taking things that are really like the motivating factors for people on the ground who have the ability to make decisions and translating them into a way that you really understand how it's going to affect them and, and make their lives better to take action is it's just a crucial part of the process. Mm. So over the over the years of, of your work in these various settings, from, as you said, New York City to Mississippi and other places, uh, come to this understanding about the uh, the necessity of being effective in the public dialogue, if I can broadly put it, a label on it. Uh, it was a subject matter of the Social Coast Forum, Tyler and I were at uh, a totally. couple of weeks yeah. back. Uh, this is all about in community engagement. Uh, from your perspective, understanding the importance of that, um, how? How is that done? What makes it work? Um, can you share some some of your experience or stories or anecdotes about how those breakthroughs happen? Well, I think um, one of the things that, that I've worked with that's been effective is um, the Gulf of Mexico Alliance, which I think you guys have, have also been pretty active in and covered a lot, has done these um, uh, coastal resilience index assessments. I'm sure that was probably yes. part of the conversations that you guys had. It was indeed. That's, yeah, that's been one of the things that's happened all across the Gulf Coast that's been a really effective way to start getting communities assessing and thinking about how um, how they might have risks and how they might have things that can be addressed at an infrastructure by infrastructure component level. Um, you know, one of the things that, that I learned really on in working with communities on sea level rise is really how to address sea level rise in terms of the impact on the community and not in terms of um, sort of a long-term projection of- Or the of cause. What the cause is. I, I don't think that that's necessarily the most productive discussion to mm. have. Um, I think, you know, being able to translate again, like I said, being able to find a way to really audit how things are affecting your community um, through direct community engagement or through an assessment process like the Coastal Resilience Initiative kind of gets you that baseline to start building off of and then to start making changes up the chain in your policy. Mm. Yeah, exactly. And for the folks out there, you could go back and listen to the Gulf of Mexico Alliance uh, podcast series, which was last year. But this, what was it? It was the Community Vulnerability Index. I can't remember. You used the term. 
I think it's community resilience index. It's yeah. evolved a few times, but a, a large number of uh, Gulf Coast communities from Florida to Texas have participated in one, including Rockport. Okay. So um, that was something that um, Sea Grant was involved in. Uh, they, they developed it, I think, out of Mississippi, Alabama, Sea Grant originally. But that was one of the ways that the city of Rockport really started preparing itself for natural disasters before Hurricane Harvey hit. Wow. And it's a good thing. And I'm just going to just for the benefit of the listeners out there and is what they're trying to do is they'll they'll come in with a team of pros. They'll 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 basically take a look around town in a very serious kind of way. And how's your electrical infrastructure and your water and where's your water source and what's your you know, substations and all of this transportation network and they'll, and they'll score it, kick the tires, they'll kick the tires and they'll say, y'all get, y'all get a, a seven and you want a 25. And they, they assess the vulnerability in a way that I think is accessible to the community and accessible to people and drives the conversation forward. It's a really great method and I'm glad you've seen it working. Well, and the other thing that they do is that they have, uh, community meetings where they actually right. interview and talk to and collect feedback from the community itself, which uh, alerts the planners and the, the, the people who are conducting this uh, index review yeah. of uh, pieces of infrastructure that might not be, you know, necessarily on the cookie cutter list for every community. Maybe there's a really important church or a park right. that yeah. is just near and dear for, to everyone. And this becomes, in, in the event of a, <laughs> of a rebuild, or like in the case of Rockport, I mean, uh, you're, you're talking about basically getting hit. You know, that's, uh, they, they just got slammed. Whole, uh, you're talking- Whole new town center. Whole new, whole new visioning <laughs> of the place. Right. Um, but it really helps you, like, what do you, what do you bring forward in that situation? Mm-hmm. And, you know, again, not to bring this all the way back around uh, our Charleston visit and the Social Coast Forum, but so much of resiliency, it seems at the community level is about this, like the psychosocial thing of yeah. it's the resilient mind. It's the ability to uh, con- conceptualize life after or during uh, climate change and with with uh, as as you as Kimberly, you uh, titled the event. A wetter world, navigating a wetter world. This, this is this is the world we live in. It's going to be like this. This will define the way our lifetimes are. It's not, uh, you know, maybe once in a lifetime you're going to. It's gonna not a one off. It's not a one off, and no. and so it is essential. With that with that change of frame, you do want to collect the data. You do want to look forward and say, hey, this is going to come again. I want to be better next time. Yeah, and, and one of the things that's an official process that kind of um, gives people an end to do that, that would, the, the Community Resilience Index is, is um, a volunteer kind of let's, let's look at things closely um, opportunity, which is fantastic. And then kind of on the bureaucratic side is the hazard mitigation plan mm-hmm. or uh, the post-disaster recovery plan, that sort of thing. So one of the things that the state's funds are actually going to be able to help communities with is preparing their hazard mitigation plans. And so you can take things, for example, that you've identified as high priorities in the CRI, and then you can integrate them into your top priorities to protect and start developing strategies for the hazard mitigation plan. Then if a disaster, God forbid, should occur, then you have 
some pre-identified priorities that you're able to go to FEMA and ask for assistance with in the event of another disaster. Got it. Kimberly, Kimberly, Kimberly can I ask you a question? Have you always been a planner? Like, do you... Is your calendar like locked out and for weeks? I mean, <laughs> how organized? Is yeah, I imagine. Account? I just have. What is to it imagine. like being a planner? You got to think you've got it all worked out. I think for you got to think about a lot of stuff. Do you know what you're doing next fall, for example? <laughs> <laughs> well, I started my career in radio. Really? Yes, I yeah. saw that. <laughs> That's very cool. We 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 love our our brothers in radio. I could sister. use a good planner. <laughs> that's what my wife and I have thought about. We should we should have, we should marry one other person. <laughs> we need a planner. No, but I Kimberly, <laughs> I want to talk. You mentioned something that caught my attention, and I wrote it down when you were talking about the adaptation versus retreat balance, and that you have to be site specific about this: the culture, the community, its history, the geography, and the and the understanding and the willingness, as you said, the willingness of the community to accept risk. And that kind of jumps out at me because, and I'm sure you have come or had this conversation with people, either your friends or family members or folks who say, when you tell them what you do, like I'm trying to get these communities to be safer, they, they immediately say, well, you should just move the hell off. And, you know, it's crazy. And, and it's the notion that the decisions of these local elected officials and the community's willingness to accept risk isn't the end of the story that taxpayers around the com- country have strong thoughts about this issue. Um, and so I want to kind of throw that into the mix. Um, and I basically think this is a little bit unfair of how this is understood, but the community's own risk assessment is a critical, it seems, and in central factor. But the social understanding of this risk uh, is also part of it. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, there are social, environmental, and economic impacts to you know the decisions that you make for any community. Um, I think that part of what you're asking about is. Um, you know, why someone would make the decision to stay in an area that's higher risk. Right. And I've turned that around in my head about a thousand times. I mean, you know, beginning from when I was responding to Katrina and I was talking with, we actually did a a significant amount of um, taking people to Washington to speak to elected officials about the needs for recovery from Katrina. And, um, you know, we would meet with someone from Illinois or meet with someone from Nevada and they would say, well, you know, why should we continue to fund you to rebuild back in these areas that are so much at risk? Yeah, that's the question I'm asking right there. Exactly. And so, you know, that that made me do some existential thinking as well. And um, unfortunately, one of the responses I have to that is, you know, if you look at a map of disaster prone areas across the United States, there's not a state that any of us could move to that's like the safe state. You know, I've heard it's Austin, but, uh, <laughs> you know, yeah, but right. you're, well, you're, you're no, say, would it be better to make a decision because of all the traffic in Austin to uh, to retreat from Austin? Yeah, <laughs> in in all seriousness, you're, you're quite right. There's the fires in California. There are the, there's the earthquake risk across the Pacific Northwest. That is absolutely serious and significant. You can look at the the Madras fault in Missouri. You can look at flooding along the Mississippi. The kinds of accommodations we make 
for natural risks or semi-natural risks is not a coastal phenomenon. That is what we not do as a, as a, as a, I would say is a human thing. Mm-hmm. And it is a little bit picking on the coast to say, you know, the hurricanes are just get just move. I think it has something to do like Tyler and I talk about all the time. The fact that you can see it coming for eight days on the national weather service on a satellite, <laughs> sort of, you know, and you're just like, what the hell you should get out of the way. But I think it's different in what we see and how we feel it, but it's not true that the coast is the most riskiest part of America. Not necessarily. And I would hate for us to get as a nation to a place where we said that we wouldn't continue to fund tornado recovery in Oklahoma, um, or we might drop out the hurricane recovery on on the Gulf Coast. I I don't think either one is a solution. No, but let me interrupt you. I know you did grow up in Texas, and I did uh, spend a lot of my time, but um, I just think everybody ought to leave Oklahoma for any number of reasons, not not the least of which is the the tornado (laughs) risk uh, in in that part of the country. But, um, But it but it's a, it is a serious question, and it goes to the funding and, and the political will. So when you were in those conversations, taking those Katrina people up to D.C., and the representatives from Nevada are asking that question, um, how was the response? Did the, did the folks that you brought up there, were they able to speak in a way that responded to that? I think so. I think that... Um you know, most change at a policy level happens because of personal interactions and relationships. Um, If people are able to talk about the distinct culture, the distinct investment, um, the timeline, the natural features of the environment they live in, and why it's not only significant to them, but significant to, you know, the United States. Like, for example, if you look at um, the Texas Gulf Coast and Corpus Christi, which has a, a major port right next to where we were talking about in Rockport. It's a huge center of oil and gas activity um, for, for the whole nation, same in Louisiana. Um, and so if you retreat and depopulate those areas, then a lot of our energy infrastructure for the country, for you know, for better or worse, is going to be affected. There won't be anybody to work in those industries anymore. So mm-hmm. there are a lot of different ways to frame that question from, you know, somebody who loves to eat oysters to somebody who drives an SUV that you can talk about the significance of coastal communities. But yep. um, but I, I don't think dismissing um, occupancy of the Gulf Coast or the Atlantic or Pacific Coast out of hand is the right solution. Uh, exceptionally well said. Uh, I was at the Corps of Engineers stakeholders uh, meeting last week, a couple of days of intense uh, discussion with our core partners on exactly what you spoke about. The infrastructure that we are now building on the Gulf Coast in Corpus Christi, in the port of Houston, and in the port of Beaumont, uh, the energy infrastructure is exploding. There are billions of dollars going into the economy to run and manage our energy system in these shorelines. And a big theme of Colonel Tim Vale, who Tyler and I know, who's the uh, the uh, head of the Corps of Engineers Galveston District, when he explained what they were doing, he said, we have got to figure out a way to keep people in these communities after these events because we're about to require a substantial workforce to operate our energy infrastructure 
along the coast. It's getting bigger and it needs more people. And he put resiliency in the same terms you did, which is this isn't flippant. This is real. We occupy and use risky spaces. We're determined to do it. We are going to be doing it. You can debate that if you want, but we got to be able to live there. And if I might just jump in here, um, this is one area where I really like the the drawing together of the New York City Sandy uh, lessons learned and and insights from that uh, region with Texas because uh, New York is another one of those places that is uh, obviously it's a major trading, but it's also the financial hub of the global economy and um it's just you the the people that live there that work there that uh comprise those neighborhoods kimberly that you mentioned at the beginning of the show um they are all a part of this community ecosystem that creates in the case of uh, the new york region this absolutely essential thing for our whole society and uh, likewise, the Gulf Coast has uh, its energy features that p- do the same thing, whether you like it or not. I, I was surprising, not surprising, but I think it was really um, fascinating to see how much the New Yorkers and the Texans connected in these conversations. Um, folks from New York City and Houston, obviously, similar size, similar um, similar contribution to the economy of their state and of the region. Um, But I think, you know, one of the other things that I've always seen as an opportunity to connect Texas and New York a little bit more is we're both very entrepreneurial, very forward-thinking states. And we approach things sometimes in different ways, but it's that difference that really makes the conversation interesting. Wow. Well, I wish we could be there. We still haven't figured out if we can't. So, Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, it is Kimberly Miller. She is the chair of the uh, American Planning Association's Harvey Recovery Task Force and a principal at Haffin Associates, uh, the principal planner for resiliency. The event is called Navigating a Wetter World, a Resilient Rebirth for the Texas Coast. It's happening uh, Friday, February 21st, coming up at the end of the week. Um, It is in Rockport, Texas. You can look it up online. Uh, Kimberly, if folks wanted to attend or learn more, how do they do that and how do folks get in touch with you? We have um, a place that you can register on the Texas APA website. Let me pull up the website so I can actually give that to you um, with a little bit more accuracy. Um, We have an Eventbrite registration. We are providing lunch and breakfast. So for anybody who anticipates being hungry on the 21st, that might be the place for you to be. Well, that's planning ahead. (laughs) (laughs) Great planning as always. Good planning, Kimberly. Planning Association. That's great. If you go to texasplanning.org, the announcement for the event is on the homepage. And if you scroll down just a little bit, click, it'll tell you more. And um, and you can register through Eventbrite. It sounds like a really great event and an important conversation, truly. uh, All along the American shoreline, this kind of thinking needs to keep moving forward and get better. Uh, Kimberly Miller, thank you so much for joining us on the American uh, Shoreline podcast and and introducing us to the discussion going on. I love the New York-Texas connection. I can't wait to hear. Perhaps you could uh, come back again and let us know how it all came out. That sounds great. I'll bring friends.
是谁？